from the top. Hi folks, I'm Adrian Sanabria, the host of Enterprise Security Weekly. Every week, we interview the most interesting folks we can find talking about the most pressing cybersecurity issues and challenges facing the enterprise today. Myself and my co-hosts have each been in the industry for decades, long enough to see the patterns in the industry and explore where trends are going. In addition to enterprise challenges, we also follow the vendor space, the most interesting security startups emerging, technology and product trends, all the most interesting funding and acquisition announcements. Finally, we love to discuss the latest trends in tech and how they'll impact cybersecurity. If you're wondering how the latest in AI, quantum computing, cloud, and DevOps is going to impact security a few years down the road, you should follow the Enterprise Security Weekly Podcast. Well, hello again, everybody. I'm Bill Brenner from Cyber Risk Alliance, and we are continuing our live coverage from Black Hat USA 2023 here at Mandalay Bay. And hope you're all having a great day. I am delighted to be here with Deepan Desai, Global CISO and Head of Security Research at Zscaler. How are you? How's your day been? It's fantastic, yeah. Thank you for having me here. So you're busy, you have a, a new report out to talk about, so let's dive right into it. Okay. Um, so we have an annual report, uh, Ransomware, yep. uh, that we published uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, and that there, there's also a talk that I'll be delivering tomorrow on the same. Mm -hmm. um, to give a context, uh, Zscaler, Zero Trust Exchange, secures 300 billion transactions daily we see half a million new unique payloads on a daily basis. And we have a team of uh, global security researchers that are tracking threat landscape, um, monitoring some of the TTPs on the ransomware threat actor side as well. So the report actually combines visibility we get from the cloud environment as well as from our tracking efforts. Uh, we, we look at successful attacks as well. And then what the team does is we, we dissect the findings by which industries are these uh, folks going after? Which regions are we seeing mm -hmm. more successful attacks? What are some of the key trends? Um, so I'll, I'll call out a few. Now, just how often does this report come out? We is it annual by an? Yeah, know, it's an annual report, and and one one aspect in the report that you will see is we will compare what changed year over year. So one one such. Uh, uh, key highlight is we saw 38% increase in overall successful ransomware attacks that were observed globally. Um, manufacturing industry vertical was, again, the number one most targeted industry vertical. And this was same the year before as well. Yeah. And then United States uh, was one of the most targeted country in terms of successful attacks. Yeah, it's really since the colonial pipeline attack. Yeah. It's, it's become open season on the manufacturing yes. and critical infrastructure and hybrids of those. So, so continuation of that. What do you attribute this? Yeah. This, you know, it seems like the never ending spike right. Right, every time you come back to it. What are the key things that you attribute this to, the activity? Right, so so look, a lot of these attacks, uh, I often get asked, like, are they targeting a specific company? Right? These guys are very, very opportunistic. Um, ransomware attack doesn't start with a ransomware payload being delivered over email 
or that being the first stage failure. There is a there is a chain of events that le- leads to a ransomware getting installed or, or dropped in your environment. It starts with stage one payload. It's sub- it could start with a simple phishing attack where your user makes a mistake, clicks on a link, downloads something. That's basically the stage one malware. It could be a completely different malware family, but they're affiliated with this ransomware gang that basically hires or, or, or pays them to get access to the environment where they're they're able to pop in. Stage two is where they're moving inside the environment and establishing that network foothold. So now it's no longer one machine being impacted, but the entire environment going down. Then they're basically get, trying to get hold of the crown jewel applications in the environment and stealing data from there. So coming back to your question, mm-hmm. A lot of the organizations realize that zero trust architecture is very, very important to defend against these multi-stage attacks, but everyone is at different stage of the journey. There are still a lot of organizations that use legacy stuff like VPN, for example. Once you VPN into an environment, you're on the network, you know, it's, it's like you said, open season. <laughs> there's, a, there's all the assets that you could reach out to. If there's an unpatched asset, then you, as long as that machine is able to reach that asset, they can exploit vulnerabilities as well at host level and then do further damage. So that's one of the reason. The other reason I can, I mean, other reason that we saw is these guys are also evolving their their tactics. One such tactic that we saw was um, in last six to nine months, we're seeing this increasing trend of encryption-less attacks. So they're not encrypting data, they're just stealing data. And I'm talking about large volume of data, terabytes, uh, 20 plus terabyte data in many of the instances. And the reason they do that is you may have a lot of security controls that may be able to flag, if you're relying heavily only on the endpoint security control, they may be able to flag the encryption activity, but they may not be able to flag data X filled out. And that's where having that true zero trust architecture where you're inspecting everything that egresses your environment becomes fundamentally important. So that's another tactic that we saw picking up and resulting in many successful attacks. A classic example that I can give you is Clop ransomware latching on move it vulnerability to exfil tons of data. There's no payload, no encryption, but they're still demanding ransom. Now we've talked about manufacturing being particularly hard hit this go around. Let's talk about geography. Where across the globe are you seeing the most concentrated attack activity? Yeah, uh, United States number one by far mm-hmm. uh, above uh, any other places. But, but then there is also various other regions in Europe like UK, um, Germany, mm-hmm. uh, France, we also saw India being targeted. Um, there, there, there are countries that are at the lower end of the spectrum, uh, and they may be accidentally targeted in certain times. Like we saw Russia, we saw uh, you know um, uh, Ethiopia and a few other countries where they may accidentally hit an organization and then they will revert back because that's not their intended or intended target. Um, they will more than likely go after uh, you know U.S. and EMEA-based organizations. And now, so that's the what's happening. Let's shift to best practices. Yeah. And 
By that I mean if you're a company and you're looking for ways to harden your company against these attacks and keeping them from succeeding, what should security professionals be keeping top of mind? Yeah. So, so look, I, I described how there are, these are multi-stage attacks, and that's exactly how I look at even when, when planning defense for my own environment as a CISO, uh, when I speak to my peers as well at, at our customers, there are four distinct stages, right? So the stage number one is where they find you and they, they, they attack things that are exposed to the internet. So anything starting from VPN to, to your apps that are exposed to the internet or even your end users that they're able to reach out to. So what can you do to reduce or hide your external attack surface as much as possible? That's number one. Number two is, are you able to enforce consistent security policy no matter where your users are, whether they're home, whether they're traveling, whether they're at events like this, or, or whether they're in the office. It shouldn't be like, oh, when they're in the office, we do these 10 things, but when they're remote, we're only able to do these five things because of whatever compute constraints or how my, uh, my, my tooling is configured. So that's where having a true cloud-native proxy-based architecture like uh, Zscaler really helps because security is essentially following the user rather than uh, being being confined to a corporate environment. The third aspect, and this is the most important one in the four stages, it's the difference between a single machine going down versus entire environment getting popped. What I mean by that is a user will make mistake. There may be an asset that gets accidentally exposed and it will get hit. The question you need to ask as an organization, as a CISO is, what is my blast radius from this point onward? Where can a bad guy get to if one of my employees' machine were to get compromised? That's what I call, how do I prevent and reduce that lateral propagation? From, and that's fundamental piece of having a zero trust architecture where you do user to app segmentation, app to app segmentation, use advanced threat detection technologies like deception, app protection to reduce that blast radius, contain it to the user or device that makes the mistake. And then the last stage is they're all after your data, whether it's ransomware attack, whether it's nation state attack, uh, whether it's info stealer, they're stealing data from your environment. So how can I enforce consistent data loss prevention engine on all data that egresses out of my environment? Again, it's same criteria, whether your user is remote, in the office, whether it's a workload sitting in the public cloud infrastructure like Azure, I want that to go through my set of DLP rules to ensure none of the data that I care about leaks out. Good guidance, thank you. So um, we're out of time for this one, but to learn much more about Zscaler, visit um, visit our website, securityweekly.com forward slash Zscaler, BH as in black hat, and learn more. It's been a pleasure. Hope the rest of your week is successful and... Yeah, thank you. Until next time. Until next time. <laughs> thank you. Hello and welcome. Uh, this is Sean Metcalf with Security Weekly, and I'm joined here with A.I. Al-Banishti 
uh, CEO and founder of Iron Scales. Thank you very much for joining. Thanks for inviting me. Happy awesome. to be here. I'm glad you're here. Uh, we're here at Black Hat Live uh, talking about things. Certainly there's a lot of vendors in the vendor hall. Yeah. It's kind of crazy there. Lots going on. Today is the second day, so we were there yesterday, and uh, I was walking around and, and talking to actually some of your folks and had some great conversations about iron scales. And one of the things that was very interesting to me is how long you've been doing this for. Uh, so it, it's, what, been 10 years, a decade of machine learning and evolving into AI. Can you tell me a little bit about that story? Yeah, I also started about 10 years ago uh, with the mission to help organizations fight phishing emails. Obviously, phishing changed a lot in the past uh, 10 years from being like, you know, the main vehicle to drive malware or, you know, bad links and fake uh, website. Now, we see threat actors using more business email compromise and launching emails with the intent to, to do some other stuff than just trying to, you know, um, install malware or hack the, uh, the endpoint, and yeah, there's no dull moment in the email security domain. So what's interesting to me is, is certainly with generative AI, there's a lot of hype, there's a lot of conversation about it. We've heard, uh, I think Ch ChatGPT is probably uh, the, the thing that really got it at top of mind yeah. for people, right? Uh, I think most people have heard about the generative AI and, and the leaps and bounds that that's done even in a relatively short amount of time. So the positive thing is people generally have a good understanding of what kind of generative AI is, that chat GPT type thing. But at the same time, there's, there's been a lot of hype. I mean, it's been buzzword bingo for years for me. <laughs> it says AI and, and, and so on and so forth. So with generative AI in, in, your, in your solution, um, how are you able to overcome some of the limitations? Certainly there's limitations with generative AI. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, obviously, OpenAI or large language models in general, they're hallucinating, especially when you ask them to, uh, to generate uh, content, so they're not 100% uh, mm -hmm. accurate, but on the other end, um, they can be very hel helpful uh, mm -hmm. with some of the, our day-to-day -day stuff. Like, you know, there are many kinds of like, you know, guides and articles on how you can be more productive and leverage this, uh, this tool um, to help you with your day-to-day -day, uh, job and tasks and, and stuff like that. I think what's interesting about OpenAI and GPTs, kind of like and an large language language models in in general, that yes, now it's being used in order to to generate text and and, and even code and stuff like that. We can talk about like, you know, how threat actors are even generating malware using um, GPT technology. But originally, and I started to use LLM five years ago mm -hmm. with the first kind of open source. Um, versions of it and you know use it to do the all the natural language processing because like we said like you know threat actors really transition from mainly trying to deliver malware to try and you know what, what do what i call hack the business process or social engineer people to do something they are not uh, supposed to do so with the power of llm we were able to understand start and, and understand intent and so understand hey someone is asking someone else to do something that is not supposed uh, to do which is around financials or uh, giving away information or stuff like that. So, uh. and, and that is the challenge, right? Is that AI is, is here for everybody, so to speak, and it's open and available. And it's, it's almost a situation where the Pandora's box has been opened with AI, and now it's released to the world. Uh, everyone can use it, including the threat actors, the attackers. How do you see the balance of AI today and as we move into the future from this malicious use of it to also being used as a tool that can help make things better and, 
maybe it's it's a little like the, uh, the the show Person of Interest, where there's a a good AI and maybe uh, uh, an AI that's being used that's not so good. Wh where do you see things today, and where do you th see things headed? Because certainly we've seen a, a threat actors and attackers generate these phishing emails and 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 attacks and these these social engineering prompts to get people to do things they normally wouldn't. Wh what are your what are your thoughts along those lines? Yeah, I think y you touched the uh, important part. Like, you know, with any kind of technology, like you know, we can use it for bad and 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 good stuff. That actors will obviously try and leverage and utilize it to do uh, bad things. We already see um, things like warm GPT and for GPT mm -hmm. kind of popping out, and I'm, I'm sure it's just the the beginning of um, what's out there, or what we should expect from threat actors to do. Um, they will use it to do some some arm. They will use it in order to automate, like like we are trying to automate some of our processes. They will do the same. When you look at the different stages of cyber attack, like you now there's always this reconnaissance or how you gather information. Now imagine kind of tasking um, GPT power technology. Hey, go and learn everything you can about John. Just cover the web. Oh, please look don't. At <laughs> <laughs> look look at his social media kind of account and stuff like that mm -hmm. and. The second one is the ideation. Okay, based on everything that you've learned about Sean, what's the best way to social engineer him or fish him and stuff like that? And then the actual exec execution. So go ahead and write this kind of email that might get his attention and lure him to click on a link or provide some information. So so now with the GPT type of uh, technologies, they can build these kits that do everything fully automatically, which means phishing uh, will not just become uh, a bigger threat because it will be more um, targeted, it will become an operational uh, mm -hmm. issues because now it will, the volumes, uh, so it's, it's the nightmare for every organization. Imagine that every employee in the organization can be fished in a highly targeted way two or three times uh, a day. Now how security teams should be able to, to deal with, uh, with the volumes and accuracy at the same time. Right, and so that's that's sort of the the drawback of it, right? The 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 negative side, the the darker side, so to speak, of of AI, and uh, the fact that attackers can leverage that and and use it into very highly target organizations. So, you said Iron Scales has been using AI for quite a while. You have your own LLM approach and uh, methodology. Um, how do you find the balance of leveraging generative AI in your solution with maybe humans? What, what does that look like? So, so on the defender side, like you now, like we mentioned, we are using LLMs for many years in order to understand intent and basically build this um, AI versus AI. Mm -hmm. So, we we were not caught in surprise when you know um, LLM became something that is more generally available for uh, for threat actors uh, as well. But for us as the defenders, like you now, the generative AI um, element of that opened a, a big kind of um, a, a lot of options to kind of do even better uh, on the defender side. For example, one of the things that we introduced is uh, what we call the uh, Themis Copilot. Mm -hmm. uh, Themis is our AI. This is how we name it. She's the Greek uh, from the Greek mythology. She's the Lady of Good Counsel. So she was really designed to help security teams. Okay, uh, she was built as a trusted advisor or as a security expert, trained on many many instances of phishing and and spam and 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 safe emails. And now we decided we can, that we can take it down to the level of the of the employee and the day to day and provide them with the same trusted advisor that can they can chat with um, about what's going on in their inbox. So if you get an email, instead of necessarily going to the security team or trying to ask someone or just wonder or Google, you can just chat with them and say, hey, I just got this email and I have a few questions or a few things that I want to know uh, about it before you know making a decision whether to interact with the email, click on the link, or report it back to the security team. 
So you can use uh, generative AI in order to, again, help people, you know, give them something that mm -hmm. will make them more self-sufficient, more aware, help them to build their own kind of awareness and skill set around cybersecurity. At the same time, take cycle off the security team that would normally have to go and answer all right. these uh, questions. Another way that you can leverage uh, generative AI is just by being one step ahead of what the bad guys are doing. We know that they will use GPT to fish our employees, so let's let's just go and do the same thing. Just mm -hmm. do it before they get the chance to do that. So we can use uh, GPT in order to create simulated phishing attacks and see how people are responding to them and give them some more specific training uh, that is very specific to the to the email that they just uh, got again in a fully automated uh, way based on everything that we know about them and mm -hmm. we are protecting them so we know what kind of emails they're getting on a on a daily basis and we can actually use it in order to train our AI so we'll see a lot of evil twins kind of popping out <laughs> in the in the near future kind of right. like how vendors and defenders are getting their own version of evil AI the evil twin AI mm -hmm. to attack the good AI and make it better um, uh, all the time, like you know, on, on a continuous kind of constant uh, basis. Well, Athena sounds very interesting, and I think one of the things that that kind of resonates with me is that everyone's busy, right? And so, like you said, the security team is busy. They're already running things down. Uh, users are getting uh, a lot of email every day, and one of the challenges that I see in in business is that oftentimes those ones that are most vulnerable to attacks are the ones that have to receive external email and have to open up attachments. When you think, uh, as you know folks that work in contracting, folks that work in HR, folks that work in finance, finance, they get all of the stuff that is sent to them. And they may hesitate to reach out to security because security's busy and, and they may see the email and go, okay, well this seems familiar enough, maybe I'll go ahead and open up that attachment. But something like Themis where they could basically reach out and ping and go, hey, I'm not sure about this, like what's the confidence level? Is this something I should be a little more aware of or careful of? Or you know, th th along those lines. So w what is what is sort of your approach with Themis, especially in those situations where you know that people are getting fished? You know that it, maybe the email address is published on the website. Themis can contextualize everything for, for the receiver. Imagine mm -hmm. that now you, have, you, you will have more insights and more information regarding this specific sender. Like, you know, um, Themis will say, hey, I know you and I know your mailbox i know that you know sean but we've never seen sean sending from a gmail address right. okay normally we'll send from his business email or hey we've never seen this specific person sending you email or anyone else inside um, the organization she would be able to say things like you know what i've looked into this link and i don't really like the domain it was created like two days ago <laughs> and really help the user get more useful insights when he mm -hmm. needs to make a decision because like you say everyone is busy and a little bit distracted and they need context. Right. And the way that email clients are built today, they were built for productivity. They were not mm -hmm. built for security. They don't have any context whatsoever. And it's very confusing. Mm -hmm. And many people don't know how to look into email headers, but Tamis does. Right. And Tamis knows how to um, articulate it in a user-friendly way that everyone can understand in order to make uh, a better decision. Absolutely. So that's the power of generative AI in the context of the on the end of the well, I, I think your point about context is very important. As humans, we really need context to understand things. I mean, how do we figure out what a car is versus a motorcycle? Context, right? Four wheels, two wheels. And I think that with AI, and especially generative AI, it's looking at that kind of approach and uh, the iterative of uh, almost recursion of, okay, it looks like this, but it's a little bit different. This is what it looks like, a little bit different. 
what do you see as sort of the strengths and weaknesses with AI, specifically generative AI today, versus where we're, we're heading in the future? Certainly we hope for more strengths and less weaknesses and better security around this, but what are your thoughts along those lines? Yeah, I think that AI will become, generative AI will become um, more accurate as time goes by. I think if you look currently at the biggest kind of challenges around generative AI, um, there are two first people see uh, generative AI is the first step to what we call AGI, or Artificial Generative uh, mm -hmm. Intelligence. Um, so first we need to solve the accuracy and the hallucination problem uh, mm -hmm. around a AI. It's Can you tell me a little about the, about the hallucination problem? Because I've heard you mention that before. Yeah, uh, hallucination is when, like, you know, generative AI was designed to always give an answer, okay? Mm -hmm. So if you ask him about the weather outside or some, you know, some esoteric uh, topic, it, it, it does a very lousy job in saying, you know what, I don't know. So it did always try to spit out, <laughs> spit out some words and, and, and try and, and, and explain it and, mm -hmm. and sound articulate and, and that in a way that, that actually makes sense. Mm -hmm. And it causes hallucination because it's just, it's, it's, it's making stuff making up. Stuff up. <laughs> uh, so to teach generative AI how to say, you know what, I'm not sure, to teach a, a generative AI how to go and, and actually look for facts and double check everything that it's saying, you know, to say, to make sure that it's real. This is one of the biggest uh, problems that they are trying to solve today. The second is obviously around alignment. Uh, mm -hmm. How do we make sure that AI will not turn uh, against us, that we, that we are both trying to kind of achieve the, the same thing and, they, and that, you know, AI won't decide one day that we are uh, not necessary anymore. Like Skynet, right? Yeah, <laughs> I, I think that's Sky. a concern of everyone. <laughs> Uh, but taking it back to the topic, uh, certainly you've you've had a lot of experience with generative AI, and and a lot of I, I believe the benefit of generative AI comes from uh, relevant data, you know, feeding that in. As you said, you fed in information about phishing, regular emails, what what looks normal, what looks abnormal, what's probably gray, and giving it kind of the path on how to figure out and make that determination to help the users with that. What have been some of your challenges figuring out how to load the data set into the LLM, and and uh, what do you see as the, the the way forward in the future as as these LMLs get big LLMs get bigger? There's a lot of data that's got to be pumped into it, and we're and and I think at some point we're going to get to a challenge where there's just too much. But what what do you think is uh, probably the the right approach along those lines as far as with Iron Scales and what you're doing? Yeah, so the approach that we took is very similar to what our OpenAI is doing with reinforcement um, learning. Like you said, you know, AI in general, whether it's the parametric traditional AI or generative AI, just as good as the data as you feed mm -hmm. um, into it. So if you feed it with incorrect data, it will spit out back incorrect data or incorrect classification. So one of the biggest challenges, obviously, is labeling. Mm -hmm. uh, there are dozens, if not hundreds, different subtypes of phishing emails, for example, okay, from financial frauds to uh, lottery scams and some, you know, uh, <laughs> the, and, and many, many others. How do you build um, accurate data sets? And you, mm -hmm. you need to be large enough, obviously. Like, you know, you can't give, um, in, you know, an LLM, you can't fine-tune it or feed it with thousands or two thousands examples and they will figure it out. Like, you need, you need much, much bigger, uh, mm -hmm. bigger numbers. So, how do you label correctly is one of the biggest problem. The way we solve it is that um, we build a crowdsource kind of environment around our solution, which means with Ironscales and we have more than 10,000 customers and more than 20,000 people that are actively working with the system every day. Mm -hmm. Every time they make a decision, we know about it and we take it into consideration um, in real time. 
it's very important with phishing because before GPT, there were four new, new four million phishing emails created every day. After G GPT, you can just imagine uh, right. where these numbers are, are going. There is no way that a single vendor um, can you know all of them, exactly. know all of them right. classify all of them, label all of them. So we really need to find a, a way to kind of uh, a, an exponential solution uh, for this exponential uh, problem and leveraging on the people that are making decisions above and beyond AI. Like, you know, because mm -hmm. AI is not the end or be all. AI cannot make 1% of the uh, of the decisions and the classifications. It has its own limits. And mm -hmm. out of 100 emails, it can classify 91, but there is one email that it needs uh, mm -hmm. human help. So by building the infrastructure around it and, and allowing people to contribute in real time and figure out how to make it uh, so it's accurate and mm -hmm. it's not kind of you know adding a bias to our uh, database, that was the kind of the key factor of being able to to scale it really quickly and keep it up to date and accurate um, at the same time. Well, very good. Well, thank you very much, Ayal. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Uh, you can read more about Iron Scales at securityweekly.com slash ironscalesph. I've been Sean Metcalf. Thank you very much for joining us in this uh, sponsored Security Weekly interview.